All right, we are back. As promised in the last segment, we need to talk a little bit about unscientific America. At least that's the term used by New Scientist magazine. We started out with the following opinions from its editorial staff. When America sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. But as the global economy stumbles on through a crisis that began when the U.S. housing bubble burst in 2007, it's easy to forget that this cheerless statement has an uplifting corollary. When America soars, it can inspire us all. From the Marshall Plan that rebuilt Europe after the Second World War, through the Apollo moon landings to today's internet, iPad, and other wonders, it's impossible to deny America's contributions. Even today, as India and China flex their muscles, the world still looks to the U.S. for leadership. This is especially true in science. Leaf through a typical issue of New Scientist and you will witness American ingenuity on almost every page. This is why the tone and content of some recent political debate in the U.S. is so disquieting. When candidates for the highest office in the land appear to spurn reason, embrace anecdote over scientific evidence, and even portray scientists as the perpetrators of a massive hoax, there's reason to worry. On issues including climate change, evolution, and public health, it may seem as if the forces of anti-science are in the ascendancy. If you look through the lens of history or apply a scientific approach, however, logical explanations for these apparently perverse positions emerge. And they refer you to other articles later in the magazine, which we will talk about in a minute. They note that what also becomes clear is that no political party has a monopoly on unscientific thinking. While the most alarming statements may be coming from Republican quarters today, don't forget that it was a three-time Democratic presidential candidate who led the attack on evolution at the 1925 Scopes Monkey Trial. And while that is true, that was 86 years ago. And the magazine is referring to three-time Democratic presidential candidate William Jennings Bryan, a man who was featured prominently in that excellent Ken Burns special on Prohibition, which we talked about with uh, Daniel Okrant a few weeks back on this show. This very same subject came up again when we talked to Editor John Avalon about his book, Deadline Artists, I'm referring to H.L. Mencken's uh, reporting on the Scopes Monkey Trial. And while we would wholeheartedly agree that a lot of Democrats, especially those from below the Mason-Dixon line, are pretty much indistinguishable from Republicans on a lot of these fundamentalist-related issues, well, most of the nonsense is coming from the GOP currently. Noted the magazine. While it was true that George W. Bush's administration often left ideology trump scientific evidence, the suggestion that there was a concerted Republican war on science was simplistic. I must admit, I'm not sure we agree with a new scientist on that particular point, and would refer you to our interview with Chris Mooney about his book, The Republican War on Science, which we conducted several years back. But the magazine noted... It's vital for science to find allies across the political spectrum prepared to put science at the heart of debate. They note that recent experience proves evidence that those allies exist, sometimes in unexpected places. When Republican presidential candidate Michelle Bachman expressed her opinion that the HPV vaccine could cause mental retardation, some of the most forceful criticisms came from arch-conservative radio pundit Rush Limbaugh and Bush's former chief speechwriter Michael Gerson. Well, I guess Rush Limbaugh, like a stopped clock, will turn out to be right once in a while. But in the magazine's eight-page special report section, Sean Lawrence Otto noted that when former Utah Governor John Huntsman argued that the minute the Republican Party becomes the anti-science party, we have a huge problem. Otto noted that Huntsman has since been marginalized by Republican pundits. 
and that the intellectual rot runs wide. He notes that 96 of 100 newly elected Republican members of Congress either deny climate change is real or have signed pledges vowing to oppose its mitigation. He adds that absurd comments are now not only politically acceptable, but passionately applauded. Notes that we are now 100% dependent upon science to find ways to preserve our environment and support our population. But policymakers increasingly reject answers science offers or pretend the problems don't exist. And he has some pretty alarming stats. Apparently less than 2% of Congress's 535 members have professional backgrounds in science. By contrast, there are 222 lawyers, whom he notes, quote, whom one suspects largely avoided science classes in college, unquote. Otto notes that lawyers are trained to win arguments, and as any trial lawyer will tell you, that means using facts selectively for the purpose of winning, not to establish the truth. Otto talks a little bit about the real history of the U.S. and how we were founded, which is uh, not the sort of stuff you hear from the Christian right. I recommend you go to the magazine and read this yourself. But near the end of the article, he points out that anti-science ideology has taken hold before. History may provide some lessons. The fundamental elements were similar when the Soviet Union elevated the ideology of Lysenkoism ahead of the warnings of geneticists, whom Trofim Lysenko called cast priests of ivory tower bourgeoisie pseudoscience. Not unlike Sarah Palin's characterizations of global warming as doomsday scare tactics pushed by an environmental priesthood. Soviet agriculture was set back 40 years. I would add that I hope that we are not similarly set back in the United States of America. But Otto notes that the political right in Weimar, Germany, held Einstein's theory of relativity as a hoax and said he was in it for the money, which is the same thing that climate deniers argue today. He goes on to note that during the Nuremberg trials, Hitler's minister for armaments, Albert Speer, recounted the use of new technology to deliver a uniform ideological message, much like today's political echo chambers. Said Speer, quote, Through technical devices like the radio and the loudspeaker, 80 million people were deprived of independent thought, unquote. Notes Otto. In other words, ditto heads. He goes on. In his great leap forward, Mao set forth a plan to transform China into a modern society in 15 years. Scientists who advised against his ideas were harassed or jailed. Mao's policies led to the greatest famine in human history and the death of over 40 million people. He closes off by noting he's involved in two projects that aim to make some science-themed policy debates here in the U.S., One is called American Science Pledge, which calls on candidates to pledge to defend science and base public policy decisions on data. The other is ScienceDebate2012.com, a grassroots campaign for a presidential debate on science, technology, health, medicine, and the environment. By the way, I should digress a moment to note that when we heard scientist Richard Muller, UC Berkeley physicist, speaking on the Bill Wattenberg program on KGO. We thought he'd be a great guest for Radio Parallax, and um, happily he agreed to speak with us about his book, Physics for Future Presidents. Mueller's a pretty smart guy, but was one of the more prominent, uh, shall we say, skeptics of global warming. By the way, that's another program we would refer you to in our archives at radioparallax.com. We we sort of talked about that a bit, Dr. Mueller's skepticism. He said he wasn't so much skeptical that the Earth wasn't getting warmer, he just wasn't sure that humans had a hand in it. Well, curiously, he uh, 
was bankrolled to study this issue by a foundation that's connected to global warming deniers. Mueller pursued long-held skeptical theories to analyze the data. And as you've perhaps read about and hopefully heard about on this program, Mueller decided he was wrong. He went back and looked at the data and concluded that the land on Earth is 1.6 degrees warmer than in the 1950s. He said that he thought these numbers matched those by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and NASA. He went even further. He went back to study the readings of Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. And Dr. Mueller presented his findings of a warmer world at a conference last week. And noted Seth Bornstein, as reported in the Sacramento Bee. His ultimate finding of a warming world is no different from what mainstream climate scientists have been saying for decades. For his part, Mueller said he came into the study with a proper skepticism, something scientists should always have, noting that he was somewhat bothered by the fact that there was not enough skepticism before. But writing in, of all places, the Wall Street Journal's editorial pages, Mueller said, there is no reason now to be a skeptic about steadily increasing temperatures. Previously, of course, the Wall Street Journal's editorial pages have been very friendly to skeptics. But at any rate, to go back to the New Scientist piece, um, I'm really startled by this quote by John Huntsman, a Republican, a man who wants to get the Republican nomination for president. Huntsman said, to be clear, I believe in evolution and trust scientists on global warming. Call me crazy. Well, no, we definitely do not call him crazy, but I'm pretty sure we're not going to call him Mr. President either. Of course, Mitt Romney, the sometime frontrunner, said at one point, I believe the world is getting warmer, and I believe that humans have contributed to that. Of course, after there was an outcry from the, from the right-wingers, he said, well, I, I'm not sure that they're causing it. Anyway, sad to say this topic is not going to go away, and we're going to continue to report on it, but I think I've had just about a whole belly full of it for today's program. I do want to thank Mr. McMillan for coming up with a bunch of old Scientific Americans he was going to toss to let me uh, see if there's something I wanted in them. And by God, there was a bunch of stuff I wanted, such as a piece by Steve Mursky in his anti-gravity section of, news of uh, Scientific American, where he was talking about people who believe that it's a hoax that we went to the moon. And no, we don't know if any Republican presidential candidates are skeptical about whether we've been to the moon or not. Considering how nutty they are in other positions, it wouldn't surprise us. Anyway, I want to quote a bit from uh, Steve Mursky. He was talking about a, a show they did on Fox about the so-called controversy about whether we went to the moon or not. But Mursky, you know, the only Fox show that features good science is The Simpsons, on which Stephen Jay Gould, Stephen Hawking, and for that matter, Buzz Aldrin have all guest starred. Although he added, there is some instructive physics in The World's Most Hilarious Fatal Car Crashes. Which, which is not a real show. Mursky said, The moon hoax show claimed that 20% of Americans have doubts about whether we ever really went. At first glance, that number looks alarming. But he said, I would estimate that 20% of Americans probably think that the Fox show Malcolm in the Middle is a documentary about a family in crisis. He said, anyway, NASA's publicity campaign began to retro-rocket as conspiracy theorists pointed at the effort as confirmation of something to hide. And rational thinkers contended that $15,000 to convince people that the world was round, I, I mean, that we've gone to the moon, was simply a waste of money. But no, it, it's, uh, it's time to get real. And in that regard, we would like to refer you also to a special editorial to the B by Mark Hertzgard, who we also had on this program. 
He spoke with us about his book, Hot, Living the Next 50 Years on Earth, and in his piece to the beat, talked about how climate change will hit home locally. Of course, one of the great scandals in Northern California is thanks to some uh, <laughs> uh, curious politics. The Army Corps of Engineers and other flood agencies certified the Natomas Basin as safe for real estate development. We now know, of course, that this was overstated. And for that reason, Sacramento is considered to be the second gravest flood threat area in the U.S. after New Orleans. In fact, in the article, Hertzgard reported that, that Stein Buer, the former executive director of the Sacramento Area Flood Control Agency, told him two years ago, that Sacramento was less protected than New Orleans had been before Hurricane Katrina. He noted that driving along the top of the levee that shields Natomas from the American and Sacramento rivers, I could easily look down on the roofs of houses below. He said, I remember seeing a dad pitch wiffle balls to his son in the side yard. If a flood broke through or over that levee, flooding was inevitable, and not just a little flooding. He quoted Maurice Roos, described as the grand old man of California water experts, as saying, It's one thing to get your feet wet. It's another thing to have water over your house. Anyway, we refer you to that piece in the B and also to Mark's book, Hot, Living for the Next 50 Years on Earth. Another special of the B I want to cite is an article by Jay Feldman. The Davis author, whose most recent book is Manufacturing Hysteria, A History of Scapegoating, Surveillance, and Secrecy in Modern America. Mr. Feldman talks about how the FBI has uh, revised its uh, handbook for its 14,000 agents as it morphs from a, quote, law enforcement agency into a domestic intelligence agency, unquote. We'll try and return to that topic, but I want to thank David for sending us an email about, uh, about some bad things going on in the Obama administration. Particularly, David sent us an L.A. Times editorial, which I think I'll read from. One of the most disappointing attributes of the Obama administration has been its, its proclivity for secrecy. The president, who committed himself to an unprecedented level of openness in government, has followed the example of his predecessor by invoking the state secrets privilege to derail litigation about government misdeeds in the war on terror. He's refused to release the administration's secret interpretation of the Patriot Act, which two senators have described as alarming. He's blocked the dissemination of photographs documenting the abuse of prisoners by U.S. service members. And now, his Justice Department has proposed to allow government agencies to lie about the existence of documents being sought under the Freedom of Information Act. At present, if the government doesn't want to admit the existence of a document it believes to be exempt from FOIA, it may advise the person making the request that it can neither confirm nor deny the document's existence. Under the proposed regulation, an agency that withholds a document will respond to the request as if the excluded record did not exist. Note of the Times, this policy is outrageous. It provides a license for the government to lie to its own people and makes a mockery of the Freedom of Information Act. The L.A. Times calls for the Justice Department to discard this rule and start over. It suggests that Obama should reread his pronouncements about transparent government. All right, let's talk about something radically different, shall we? Did want to talk a little bit more about the Old Farmer's Almanac on this program. As we mentioned, Sam McManus had a nice, uh, nice piece about this American institution in the Sacramento Bee. And... Uh, I like to read it for the astronomical portions. 
you probably noticed that sunsets have gotten radically earlier in the evening. This is something that really creeps up on us in October every year. At any rate, I pulled out the old farmer's almanac in relation to what, uh, what took place in October just to run some numbers and thought I'd share them with you. During the month of October, the day length goes from 11 hours and 46 minutes at the beginning of the month to just 10 hours and 37 minutes by the end of the month, a shortening of the day by an hour and nine minutes. And you would think that uh, since we're losing an hour and nine minutes, 69 minutes, you probably lose 34 minutes on the sunrise and 34 minutes in the sunset, but boy, would you be wrong. Sunsets go from 6.51 p.m. at the start of the month to 6.11 at the end. Meaning that of that 69 minutes of day shortening, 40 minutes comes off the sunset, with only 29 minutes coming off the sunrise. How can this be? This is a question that I'm, I'm confident has puzzled you and troubled you, dear listener. It has to do with that little thing called the analemma, which you see on many globes, that little figure eight-shaped diagram. Turns out because the Earth's orbit is not a circle, and this time of year as we get closer to the sun... We're moving faster. And so it is that midday, the noontime hour, as measured by the sun, is a little bit early and a little bit late throughout the year. This time of year, it's at its maximum earliness. If you go out and measure where the sun is at a given time on any day and trace it out, it'll make a figure eight. During this time of year, October, November, the sun is fast by up to 15 minutes, which accounts for why it seems to disappear over that western horizon a little bit earlier than you'd think. This is kind of a tough thing to explain, made doubly tough by the fact that we have no pictures on radio. But that's where the internet comes in. Go to the web, look up Analemma, spelled A-N-A-L-E-M-M-A, and check this thing out. This is also the correction factor on your backyard sundial. If you're using a sundial to measure when we hit noontime, or during daylight savings time, which we still are, 1 p.m., or in the case of daylight savings time, which we're still experiencing up till the 5th of this month, you'd be looking at 1 o'clock, but same difference, it comes early. By the way, I would advise you not to do as my mother did, which is to go out and check the backyard sundial, notice that it was an hour off during daylight savings time, and then turn the dial so that it read the correct time. Do not do this. You have to line that little spine up with the North Pole and leave it there. And we're also going to leave it there as regards to our second segment. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett. <laughs> 